Have you ever wondered, like I have, maybe not, maybe you have though, if we really needed our sense of smell? You know, we have five senses, and I, I've thought before, okay, I can see something, I can touch it, I can even taste it. What does smell give to me? Um, you know, we don't have a sense of smell like the animals that can smell long ways away. A bear is said to be able to track food for 18 miles, smell it 18 miles away. And an elephant is, be, is able to, apparently, able to smell water, even underground water, 12 miles away. We have nothing like that. So what does smell actually give us? Uh, but I, I was corrected in my thinking, and I was reading this week that, that smell actually does contribute to all the other senses, and, and maybe you understand that, you know, the way we taste things is, is dependent on smell to a degree. Um, maybe you can understand that if you have a really bad cold or your allergies are really flaring up, you feel somewhat dead to the world. You can't really feel as much as, as other things, and there are people that make the case there's even um, psychological effects of not being able to smell. I'm not sure about all that, but we, we do know that our, our sense of smell does tell us things, right? It tells us when things are good, tells us good smells we like, good food, uh, perfume, or other things like that. It tells us when things are not going well. Um, we, uh, our, our turtles tank this week, the, the filter in it was all clogged up. And you know how we knew? Because we could smell it. And uh, we took care of that. And then Chrissy put one of those, you know, plug-in scent things, sensor all over the place. And this one, I think, was kind of undersold. Uh, it just said fresh air. Uh, but it was a lot stronger than what I normally think of as fresh air. Uh, it kind of smelled like the air outside of an Abercrombie store. Um, <laughs> But we're also told that our, uh, our, our sense of smell is often associated, and maybe even more strongly than any of other senses, with our memories. Have you ever smelled something and instantly been taken to a memory? Um, I can smell really strong garlic and soy and instantly be back on the streets of, of uh, China, where I was 14 years ago. Uh, and one time I was playing soccer. I was playing soccer for high school. We were on the field in Danville, and I don't know what I smelled, I don't know what it was, but it made me think of the time I was in New Zealand. And I don't know what I was thinking about in New Zealand, but it, in the middle of trying to chase someone down, I was thinking about New Zealand uh, just because I'd smelled something. Um, it's an interesting thing, our, our sense of smell. Um, and, and this morning, we're going to look at a, at a place where Paul uses the sense of smell, a, a very a visceral, visceral reaction that we sometimes have to, to the sense of smell. Uh, it's a powerful metaphor he uses for understanding the gospel and, and our Christian life here. Uh, let's pray about that. Um, we're going to just walk through the verses. I'm not going to read them all at once. We'll just walk through them as we get to them. Uh, but let's pray for our time this morning. God, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for our sense of smell and all the other things that you bless us with. And we thank you for um, what your word is going to teach us this morning. That pray that uh, the truths of it would help us to, to understand the gospel more uh, and, and our Christian life. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 2 Corinthians here, we're starting to get to the, the real, rich, the theological gospel core of what Paul is trying to communicate to, to the Corinthians. And that's admittedly what I was really excited about when I, when I picked 2 Corinthians to preach next. I was really thinking about uh, this part of the book on into f- chapter 4 and 5. Um, 
in, in these verses here, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2. There's this really good, solid truth about the gospel. But I'll also admit to you, um, those verses in the middle of the context, looking at verse 12 and 13 and then verse 17 and then this whole context we've been talking about, is admittedly a little harder to put that all together than, than I first thought. And uh, one of my commentators that I was referencing this week said that these verses and on into chapter, chapter 3 are some of the most difficult to interpret uh, of all of Paul's writings. So, yay. Um, I don't say that for your pity, but just so if you are at all thinking, okay, why is he saying this? What does it have to do with everything else? You're not alone. The, the best commentators in the world all disagree with each other on how all these phrases and clauses fit together. So let's work through this together and I think come to uh, at, at least a reasonable understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate, focusing on the gospel, the Christian life, and, and ultimately on Christ. Um, so we're going to get to those, those, those really meaty verses, verse 14 through 16, but before Paul does that, he has these verses 12 through 13. Uh, he's, he's beginning to transition from his discussion of his travel plans into the next conversation he wants to have with him, but he mentions one more time here uh, where he had to change his plans. I know we've already talked about that, but here's one more th time where Paul mentions it. So let's read verse 12 and 13. Paul said, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So another time that Paul changed his plans and another time where Paul is communicating uh, that he was overwhelmed. He said there, my spirit was not at rest. And the story here, after Paul had last visited Corinth, what he called the painful visit, he left, but then he sent his companion Titus back to Corinth with a letter, and it was called the severe letter. He called for their repentance. And while Titus was there, you remember, you know, ancient world travel by foot and everything, weeks and weeks and months and months of travel, no communication. Paul was doing other things, going and ministering other places, but he was waiting to hear back from Titus, how everything went with Titus in Corinth. Uh, and so he picks up that story here. He was in a city called Troas. He had just come from Ephesus. Now he's in Troas because he's wanting to get closer to Macedonia. Troas is across the sea. It's in what we call modern-day Turkey. Corinth is over in modern-day Greece. So he moved over to Troas, which is closer to Macedonia, Greece, Corinth. He's wanting to get closer so we can hear sooner how this is all happening. Um, so he's there in Troas, he stopped and he says he had a great opportunity to preach the gospel. He said, a, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But, Paul explains, he chose to leave even that city, Troas, because he wanted to get closer. He wanted to go down into Macedonia and be even closer to Corinth to find Titus. He, he was so concerned for the health of the church of Corinth that he went, wanted to focus his attention there even at the expense of ministry elsewhere. And he was wanting to reiterate to the Corinthians, he loves them. Uh, everything that he's been going through with them, all the hard things he's had to say to them and, and confrontation and asking for their repentance is because he loves them. And he's demonstrating that by, I'm not focusing here, I'm not here, I'm coming to Corinth. I, I'm, I'm focusing on you guys. I care deeply for that. So some of the 
trick in understanding this is how does Paul go from these verses to the next couple verses? I want to get there, but before we do that, I want to point out two things that are just instructional to us, just what these verses and what Paul is saying in these verses here. So first of all, number one, Paul is experiencing a, a different type of, of suffering. You know, we've talked about suffering a lot lately. Uh, there were a couple specific sermons about it over the summer before we even got to 2 Corinthians, and that's really about suffering a lot. So I, I hope you're not like getting burned out in preaching about suffering. We, we want to preach about suffering because God's word speaks to that, and especially when that's the next verse and we want to speak to it. Um, but I understand that that's been the focus a lot. Um, part of that is what Paul's getting to here, but, uh, so we'll bring that up, but we also understand everything else that, that Paul is talking about. Um, but the sp- suffering he's talking about here, he said his spirit was not at rest, he was discouraged, he was concerned, he was overwhelmed is the, the word I'm using. But this is, this is what Paul describes later in, in chapter 11. Chapter 11, Paul lists a bunch of his sufferings, but the end of the list, he, he lists everything, and then he says, apart from this, apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. And some would say that's even like the, the top of his list. He's listed everything, but then he's saying, but then there's this, this big thing, my anxiety for the churches. And I don't think Paul is, is describing sinful worry here. The Bible does warn us of sinful worry, of, of not trusting in God, uh, but it also speaks of concerns that we have right concerns that we have of, of things that are in our lives that, that we have responsibility for and things that, that weigh on us with that responsibility. Paul spoke of Timothy in Philippians chapter two. He said that Timothy had a genuine concern for Paul. In 1 Corinthians seven, husbands are said to rightly have a concern for their wives, even one that would divide their attention between God and their family. And later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, or 14 rather, uh, the entire body of Christ, the different members of the body of Christ are said to have a concern for each other, a right weight of responsibility. And those words are all words that can be described or can be interpreted or translated as worry, but they're understood in the Bible as as right concerns that we have. So Paul was carrying this, this heavy load. Uh, this responsibility and concern for churches. Now, he, he wasn't Jesus, he wasn't trying to be the head of the church, but he, he felt that, that weight of responsibility for that. And maybe, hopefully, you feel that for your church too, this church. Maybe even especially now in a place where we're in a season without a senior pastor and we're, we're looking for one, we want one to come. And, and you, you, you feel that concern. And that could lead you to sinful worry not trusting in God, but even if not, even if you're trusting in God, that can, that can weigh on your heart. I know as pastors and, and the deacons, as we're searching for a new pastor and trying to keep things going, that weighs heavily on us, and, and it probably does you too, and that's a good thing. Not just the, the church as a whole, but loving individuals, loving people can, can be a weighty thing. Uh, and maybe you feel that, that concern of responsibility. So that's another part of the picture of, of suffering that Paul paints for us. It's not always physical suffering that's happening to us. It's not always someone sinning against us or God giving us a specific type of suffering to teach us a lesson. Sometimes it's just the, the normal concern of the responsibilities we, we have. Another instructive thing here in these verses, verse uh, number two here, um, Paul's balance of ministry. He had a choice between continuing evangelism 
and focusing on a, a, an existing local church, staying in Troas or going to find out about Corinth. And he chose to leave the evangelistic opportunity to go to find out about the local church ministry, how Corinth was doing. That, that doesn't mean that local church always trumps evangelism. I don't think that's the point that's being made. Uh, but I think that does help us to see that both are ministry, both are discipleship, both are part of the Great Commission, what Paul was supposed to be doing, evangelizing, making new disciples, uh, but also investing in existing disciples and helping them grow to be more like Jesus. Both were worthy parts of Paul's ministries, you know, being disciples, making disciples. That's our theme for this year. So those are two instructive things we didn't want to miss while we are in those verses, but what does Paul do with that? He described that's what happened to him. How does he respond to that? It affected his ministry. What, what does he do with that? So that's where he says in these verses, verse 14 through 16, he says, but, because of all that stuff, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So Paul is responding to this whole Corinthian situation by saying, basically, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for it, and I want to make the case for it. He's saying, I'm thankful that... I am overthrown. That might not make immediate sense to you. Um, but I want to unpack these word pictures here. Paul is talking about a triumphal procession. He's talking about fragrance and, and aroma. And so we want to understand um, why, why Paul's saying this in response to the Corinthians situation. I want to say, first, what is Paul talking about? He's saying triumphal procession, fragrance, stuff like that. But then what point is he making with this? So when he says Christ leads us in a triumphal procession, he's picturing um, a, a Roman military victory parade, a victory parade. And when you think, hear those words, maybe you think of a victory parade like a sports team that has a parade after they won the Super Bowl or the World Series. Maybe that's a, a, some of a picture. Maybe you're thinking more like uh, the VE Day or VJ Day parades. Maybe not so much an actual processional, but here's Winston Churchill you know, in front of a just a public outpouring of, of celebration because the war was over. I think there's some of that there. Or maybe like the, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Chicago, a major cultural event, or other major cultural events like Old Thresher's Parade here in Mount Pleasant. Um, but the Roman Victory Parade, um, here's a, a visual of that, it's carved. Uh, they're mentioned as happening at least 350 times in, in Roman history. Um, they, are, they happened for certain reasons, and they happened in, in certain ways. There's a prescribed order to it, and I won't necessarily go into all the details, but they were held, first of all, just to proclaim Rome's might. We won. <laughs> Come see us in all of our glory. But they're also specifically held to honor a general who was the specific reason you know, they had a victory. And the reverse side of that is they were meant to heighten the shame of their enemies. We're praising ourselves and our general for victory, and we're heaping shame for your loss. And the ways that they did that, they, the parade involved lots of officials, state officials, the Senate marched in the parade. Um, 
they had trumpeters, they had incense, they carried the spoils of war after Rome sacked Jerusalem, they paraded around with the, the menorah from the temple, uh, that's pictured in a carving. Um, they had white bulls that would be led in this processional, and at the end of the processional they would sacrifice them to their pagan gods. Uh, but one other key thing that was happening here right in front of the general who the parade was for was that there were captives of the war. Prisoners of war that had been taken in this conquest that this general is being honored for were marched right in front of this, this general. Part of the spoils of war, part of the demonstration, we win, you lost, uh, but they're also being marched to their execution. Normally that ended in these prisoners of wars, uh, prisoners of war execution. So when Paul says Christ leads us in a triumphal procession, this is what he's picturing. That's, that's the thing he's talking about. Now what does he mean by that? Um, again, opinions differ on that. Um, one of the questions that might help us understand that is, okay, if this is the victory parade, who was beaten? Who did Christ beat? It's Christ's victory parade. Uh, there's an obvious answer to that. Evil, right? Good versus evil, or specifically Satan, sin, death. And we sang about that just a few minutes ago in the, the mighty fortress is our, is our God. We sang the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him, his rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. One little word, that word, Switching verses, I know. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, and he must win the battle. Christ is victorious over evil, Satan, death, hell. This is reiterated in, in Colossians chapter two here, using the, the same picture of this triumph. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by, and put them to open shame by trying, triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is the victor. Satan, evil, sin, death, they're the losers. So where, is, where are we? Where is Paul saying it, we are in this picture? I think it's right to understand Paul is saying we're in the procession, right? We're not just observers of this victory parade. He says God in Christ leads us in this triumphal procession. And he uses this word again, us. He's talking about himself and his companions, but I think the implications extend to, to all believers, all Christians. Some would say that we're in the, the chariot marching with the victorious Christ, the victorious general. We're in the victory alongside him. Or some would say, you know, we're somewhere in the parade, we're the trumpeters or something like that. Or some would say this is a picture of Christ leading each of us individually in victory in our own life. And I can see ideas that make sense in those, uh, that there's a, a victory element that, that, that applies to us, but I think that those only make sense if we first understand that, that we are the captives in the processional of Christ, that we are overthrown by Christ. We're the captives. The, the wording of the phrase here, he leads us in triumphal procession, the us in there is the, the object of the procession. The us, the we. We are who are triumphed over in this processional. It's Christ's processional, 
and the us is the one who are triumphed over. That's, that's the picture of the wording there. So we asked just a minute ago, who was beaten? We answered it, Satan, right? That's not, tr- not untrue, and it doesn't change this, because when we understand ourselves as sinners, we understand that from the moment we are born until we repent and turn to faith in Christ, if the lines are drawn, we're on Satan's side. Our sin puts us on Satan's side, not our creator. This is what is described in Romans chapter five. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we'll finish that phrase in a moment, we're called enemies in our sin. We are enemies of God. We're not on God's side. When the lines are drawn, we're on Satan's side. We're on the side of sin and death and evil. But the beautiful thing about this picture is while Paul is saying we are the captives, we are the ones who are, we're enemies of God and we've been conquered. It don't, doesn't have to stay that way. Paul didn't stay an enemy of God. He was conquered by Christ on the road to Damascus. He was turned from a a proud, pharisaical persecutor of Christ into a a humble apostle and a co-heir with Christ. Christians don't stay enemies of God. And the same act that did conquer Satan in sin and death, and that same act, Christ's death on the cross, conquers us sinners. It destroys our sinful rebellion. But it also makes us not enemies anymore. It makes us reconciled to him. This verse here, how much more now that we are reconciled, we're no longer in conflict, we're no longer on the side that's opposing God. We are reconciled, we don't stay captives, we don't stay enemies, and he makes us sons, saving us from the death that is due us as captives. So in a sense, we, we are the captives and we're condemned to death and in a sense, we are saved and we've been changed out of that. And this is, this is true of every Christian. A time where once and for all, Christ has conquered your sinful soul. But it's also true that this continues on in the life of the Christian. Paul uses the word here that God in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. It's not just a one-time thing, it's a continual thing. So how does Christ continue to lead us in, in something that is captive and death and conquering us and giving us life? I think it means at least two things here. I think again, Paul is speaking of his physical suffering as he's been making the case in 2 Corinthians. Uh, his suffering as an apostle and ours imitate and reflect the sufferings of Christ. And we, we're talking about Christ being the victor. This is his victory parade, but do remember, that's only after he suffered. He willingly surrendered to his enemies, and they thought they were the ones having the victory parade until he was risen victorious. And so when we suffer, whether it's the physical suffering, it's the, just the weight of concern we were talking about that we have for our responsibilities, we portray that the suffering of Christ that came before his victory. The second thing, what I think this means, the, the always being led in this processional, I, I do think we can understand this, the, the, the regular triumph 
of Christ in our life as a regular daily part of our sanctification. We're not dying again, we're not getting saved again, but this is, I think, a picture of the regular dying to ourselves. As Jesus spoke to his disciples all the way back in Luke chapter nine, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And it says the word daily. It's a repeated, regular thing where Christ's disciples will have to choose to die to themselves, to take up their cross. The, the cross is not a, a benign picture. Take up your cross. That's a, a picture of death and a regular death where we choose to say, I need to be overtaken by Christ. I need to be overthrown. I need to die. Christ needs to conquer me today and, and live through me. It's a regular, repeated act of, of Christ triumphing in us. The life of a disciple is one where self-denial daily displays the triumph of Christ in our life. So I want to ask you, do you understand that call of the gospel? Not just that Christ conquered your soul once and, and so you get to be in his victory parade, but the call that says you need to be one who regularly dies to yourself. Uh, when, when John Calvin, the famed theologian of centuries ago, was interpreting this text, he did not like the image uh, of Paul being the captive in this victory parade. Uh, and it's recorded, he wrote down that he, he understood that's what the word meant, but he had to translate it in a different way because he didn't like that picture. You could disagree or agree with all the rest of his theology, but in this regard, he did not like the idea that to be a disciple meant dying to ourselves on a repeated basis and being one who was conquered by Christ. So this, this picture here, the triumphal procession, it's a, it's a description primarily of what Jesus has done. How in the gospel Christ defeated Satan, how he saves sinners, takes them from being captives to, to not being captives and condemned to death. It has implications for us, but it's primarily about what Christ has done. Uh, but he, that's not the only thing he says. Remember, he says we're, we're the captives, but he also then describes us as the fragrance. We're the aroma here. And I think that we can understand that it's still part of this triumphal processional. Uh, some other people say that's maybe referring to Old Testament sacrifices, and I understand that. Old Testament sacrifices are repeatedly described as a pleasing aroma, a fragrance pleasing to the Lord, like Noah's sacrifice in Genesis chapter eight, or the other descriptions in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, but I still think it makes sense connecting it to the triumphal procession. Remember, one of the elements of that parade is the incense. There's incense that was being carried around so all the observers and the participants in the processional could smell. And there is this smell of victory. There is this aroma of the conqueror and also of defeat. It, it was a way, one of the ways that the Romans experienced this victory parade. They could see it, but they could also smell it. And Paul is saying that leading us in the processional as captives it's also a way that he is spreading his fragrance through us. He's connecting these ideas of, of being the captives, being led, with also us giving off a smell, 
a fragrance, and it's the smell of him. So if you can make this make sense, to be a captive in the procession of Christ is to give off the aroma of Christ. These ideas are, are linked. It's one of the ways that people can see and, and behold and experience the triumphal procession of Christ by the aroma that we give off, by us living as captives. The way that we live as captives of Christ can point people to that very truth. So everything that Paul meant by being captives, the suffering he was talking about, being conquered by Christ, the the once and for all time where he changed us from rebellious enemies to sons of God, or the continual dying to ourselves, the continual taking up our cross and self-denial, those are the fragrance. Those are the aroma of the victorious Christ. And this fragrance, it goes everywhere. Verse 15, it says, this aroma of Christ goes to God. Our life as captives is a pleasing aroma to God. It's, we are the aroma of Christ to God, like an Old Testament sacrifice where Christ, God could smell the sacrifice and it was a pleasing aroma. But it's not just to God, it goes to people everywhere. It goes to people. We are the aroma of Christ to other people. We'll expand on that in a minute, but I think this is why Paul is, is saying this right after he said verse 12 and 13. Paul was thankful for being overwhelmed, thankful for having physical suffering, thankful for being taught by Christ to deny himself because to live in that, to live as a captive, was a pleasing aroma to his God. He was thankful that those things that were hard for him was what pleased God in the way that he lived. And he also was thankful that the things that were death in his life, physical suffering, dying to himself, was speaking life to other people. It wasn't just a pleasing aroma to God, it was the fragrance of Christ to others. And so even the the worst things in his life, God was using to bring about life to other people. And I think that that is why Paul was so thankful. And even after describing everything that was going wrong with the Corinthians, he said, but thanks be to God. And Christ leads us in this processional. There's a couple other verses here. The fragrance we're talking about, the aroma that we should give off by being captives of Christ, living in that way, it does have different effects on people. There are different responses to the aroma of the victorious Christ. My wife and I have very different responses to the smell of coffee. It wakes Christy up in the morning and makes her excited to taste the coffee. When I smell coffee, I get a headache. I I don't want to taste it, I want to go outside. Um, It's the same smell but there are two different responses to it based on the person. Paul says here in verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's the same smell, but there are different responses. This is like what we sing about in our Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this phrase. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Not just the hopes, but the fears. It's the same Christ who came, but there's a different response. To some, it's hope, and to some, it's fear. To those who are being saved, it's the smell of the victorious Christ. When they see it in our life, it's life to them. But to those who are perishing, that same smell, the aroma of the victorious Christ in our life, is death to them. Those who are being saved, and I think that can mean those who are saved and being sanctified until glorified, but also it could mean those who aren't yet saved, but will be, seeing the life in us, of us living as captives and giving off that aroma, it speaks truth to them, it speaks life to them. And this is the ministry that we have to each other, to outsiders, to unbelievers who may yet be saved, but to those who are perishing, those who have rejected Christ, it is a reminder of their condemnation. Like the captives who were in that victory parade, they smelled the incense and it was not something that caused them to rejoice. It was something that they knew smelled like their death. Maybe you've seen that in in some ways where people have responded to you in in a visceral way when they've seen you living out a way that that gives off the aroma of Christ. You choosing to say, no, I can't do that tomorrow. I'm going to church. You choosing to to say, I'm not going to make fun of my wife. I'm not going to call her the ball and chain. I'm going to love her. I remember when I was in eighth grade and at track practice, I remember I was uh, by a, a small group, not, not everybody, but by a, a small group of people, uh, teased, made fun of, challenged for the fact that I was not checking a girl out. When we live in a way that says, it's not about me, we live in a way that says, I need to die to myself. I would love to have a Sunday morning off, but I'm going to church. We live in a way that says it's not about me. I don't get to do whatever I want. That is death to those who are perishing. And that's not something we rejoice in. Ours is not the ministry of choosing who that will be, who, who will respond with life or death, who will, who will live or perish. There are two different ways. And it helps us to know that it's not us who they're rejecting. They're, they're rejecting Christ. It's not our fragrance. We, do, we don't want to give off enough of our own fragrance that that repels people. We want to give off the aroma of Christ. And if that makes them recoil, and that is death to them, uh, it's Christ who they're rejecting, unfortunately. So how, how will you respond? Maybe there are some of you who, who that does smell like death, all this talk about Christians suffering and sacrificing and, and denying themselves, maybe that does sound like a terrible way to live to you. I encourage you to see the life in it. Don't respond. Don't stay an enemy of Christ who will have to be led in victory as a captive. But even if you are someone who, who belongs to Christ, rejoice in seeing the life even in other people's suffering and self-denial.
Let that speak life to you. So Christ is the victor. We're the captives. We're the aroma. But as I've kind of been hinting, we also get to taste of the victory too in Christ. We get to not just be overcome, but be overcomers in Christ. Paul asked in verse 16 and on into verse 17, in verse 16 he said this, who is sufficient for these things? This hard ministry. And it seems like he's implying the answer is no one is sufficient. And I understand that that's true. But then in verse 17 he goes on to make the case Compared to all these other guys who are just peddling the gospel and doing ministry this way, Paul's actually making the case, I am sufficient to do the ministry God has called me to do. But he's not saying that in his own strength. He says a few verses later on in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he says, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so Paul's saying we've been changed from someone who was an enemy a captive to now someone who is, by God's grace, sufficient to carry on the same ministry that, that Christ is involved in. And I, and I like how this is understood in the broader context of Scripture. If, if you'll go with me, you can look on the screen, you don't have to turn there, it's a Psalm 68. This is a, a Christological psalm speaking of a time when Christ would ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Very similar picture to what we've been talking about in 2 Corinthians. But this verse is quoted again in Ephesians chapter 4. Many of you were uh, with us over the summer talking about Ephesians chapter 4 a lot, uh, and that being really foundational to how the church is supposed to grow and work together and how each person is supposed to be involved in the work of the ministry. And so Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter four, and he says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He didn't quote that directly. Do you notice anything that he changed? In Psalm 68, he says, you receive gifts from men. But in Ephesians four, Paul is making the point, and he's teaching through this. He's saying, you gave gifts to men. And that's his argument, that he gave gifts to men so that everyone can be a part of building up the church. Everyone can be a part of spreading the knowledge of Jesus around the whole world. Everyone can now live as a captive and be the fragrance and the aroma of Christ. It's for all of those who belong to Christ. We are overcomers. We are now part of Christ's victory. So Christ has turned our defeat into victory again. We're not overcome, we're overcomers in Christ. We can have victory over sin in our life now. We can deny ourselves because of the spirit in us, whereas before we only live by our flesh. There's victory over ourself. And there's victory in the future. And this triumphal procession, it's, it's just a picture. It's figurative, we aren't actually marching in a parade. But it it makes me think of a time when we will do that. And Psalm 68 is a picture of that to come. It's it's expanded a little bit in Revelation 19. And it's not exactly a parade, but there's a time where it describes that Jesus will ride on a white horse to defeat his enemies. And he says, the armies of heaven, implication of us being there riding with him. And there will be final and ultimate victory over his enemies. 
And then his throne will be set up where he will reign for a thousand years and then forevermore. And we will have the joy of being in his presence and worshiping him for all eternity, worshiping him for his victory, participating in his victory for all time. I'm really looking forward to that time. Uh, I'm looking forward to our our next sermon series, as Pastor Matt mentioned. Uh, Tim Little's coming to talk about uh, more Old Testament prophecy, but he's going to specifically focus on end times. Uh, Not just about Old Testament things, but end times and the return of Christ. We're looking forward to that. The, uh, the application here is similar to what we've talked about for, for several weeks in 2 Corinthians, understanding suffering correctly, being willing to suffer, understanding the church correctly, um, not living for ourselves, things like that. So the application isn't largely different. We could, we could use it, the, the word pictures here, to, to say, you know, are, are we giving off the aroma of Christ? Do you live in a way that shows others that you are a captive of Christ, but that you're also the fragrance of victory of Christ. The application isn't so much different, but hopefully this picture and this focus on the gospel uh, might serve as a better and and a deeper motivation for us. Not a different application, but a deeper motivation. When we understand what Paul is teaching us about, about Christ, about the sacrifice and what we're going to participate in in a moment, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. That should serve as a good motivation for us to live in a way that that shows that we're captives of Christ and yet we have the victorious aroma of, of Christ in us. Let's take a moment to pray. We'll sing about that and then we're going to move to that focus on Christ himself. When we sing, I'll have the deacons join us on the second verse up here. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the victorious Christ. And that means that we are conquered, and yet we also get to be overcomers with Christ. We are overthrown, and yet we are overcomers of the things in our life. And we pray that you would help us to live like that. Help us to live as captives, surrendered to Christ. Thank you that we're not enemies, though, that we can give off the right aroma. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.